Um, Most gracious Lord, we do thank you for a new day, for Sunday being a day that points to the resurrection and your ultimate restoration of all things. Lord, as we live into that, we pray that you'll be with us in our midst as we look at scripture, open our eyes and our hearts that we might grow in our adoration and worship of you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, with it being Advent, wanted to have some Advent-directed um, looks at the early life of Jesus, his, his birth, the incarnation. And, and so, we'll be looking at Luke's genealogy of Jesus today. Next week, uh, Stephen McCarthy will take us through Matthew's version because they are different, and we'll see some of that today. Um, and then we'll look at things like the virgin birth and uh, the type of king Jesus came to be, um, being born in a manger. And so uh, so that's where we'll start um, with, with Luke's genealogy. So we'll be... Kind of looking some at Luke uh, chapter 3, which is where Luke places his genealogy. Luke 3, verse 23 is where it begins on page 733 in these Bibles. So you could mark your other scripture passage maybe with the little notation if you want to turn there. So, so one of the perplexing parts of the birth narrative about Jesus is that there are two birth narratives <laughs> and and you get a little different take from Matthew or from Matthew and Luke um, you know Matthew it, it covers 42 generations he says you know three three 14 generation periods and Luke doesn't divide his up that way um, Matthew counts um, starts at Abraham and leads up to Joseph Luke starts with Joseph being the supposed father of Jesus and counts all the way back. And he goes, and one thing we're going to really focus on is why he goes past Abraham, he goes all the way to Adam. So he traces the entire history and a sense of mankind. Um, And so it does raise questions for people both inside the church and outside the church. So, you know, the origins of Christianity, you know, who is Jesus of Nazareth? Um, who is he? Where does he come from? And what is his human connection? What does it mean that he was both divine and human? Um, and so we'll, we'll look here, starting in Luke 3, 23. It says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. And 30 is a symbolic uh, age for beginning of service for God. The, the priests in the Old Testament would begin their service of God at 30, actually. Numbers 4.3 says that. Um, and uh, Joseph, I don't know if you knew this, but he entered into the service in Pharaoh's household when he was 30 years old, uh, back in Genesis 41. And Ezekiel, the prophet, he starts off saying in his 30th year, he was called by the Spirit of God to speak a prophecy. Um, and then a, a really close connection with the age 30 is uh, David. He, was, he began his kingship at the ripe young age of 30. And so it is no coincidence, you could say, that Luke is saying he started his public ministry at the age of 30 years old. Now, uh, Matthew 
when he gives the narrative of Jesus, he starts out his gospel in chapter 1 right away. Here's the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And he gets right into it. And he, he talks about how Jesus is the adopted heir of Joseph, that he's tracing Joseph's lineage. And this is what Matthew will take, take us through next week. Um, he's the legal heir of the kingly line going back through David, that he inherits the, line, the kingship that God had promised to David, that when God promised David, you will always have a king on your throne. That someone from your line will always be ruling over Israel. Um, and he starts, like I said, with Abraham um, to talk that points to the promises of God, that God's promises come sure and true. And, uh, and so that's really focusing on the legal and royal family heritage. But Luke, after saying this, that he was the supposed son of Joseph, and I think that's an interesting remark uh supposedly the son uh, and it, and it's because he he talks earlier the birth of Jesus is actually foretold in in chapter 1 by Luke chapter 2 then is the birth of Jesus and he makes it very clear that it is a miraculous birth that Mary was in fact a virgin and so Joseph was betrothed to be married to to Mary um, but he was not it was not his seed, per se, that produced Jesus, this son. And so that's why he, he, he that's a hint at the uh, virgin birth, which I'll, I'll take us through in a few weeks, just talking about the implications of it being a virgin birth. Um, but he says, so he's being the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. Now, Heli, um, he was actually Joseph's fa- father-in-law. That was actually Mary's father. Uh, and so, so, so Matthew gives Joseph's lineage. Luke is really giving lineage from Mary's side. Um, and so, but because in the climate, you know, in the first century, the legal status it, it was dependent on the father. They traced the father's line typically. And so he says, you know, Joseph, the son of Heli, but he's really the son-in-law. And so. Um, he starts going through all these names, and many of them are unknown. Uh, you know, th- they're not found in other places in Scripture or even in antiquity literature. Um, and the same is true in Matthew, a lot of the names. But there are certain names that stand out to us. So in verse 27, the son of Johan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel. Now, Zerubbabel was an important figure in the Old Testament. He wasn't spoken about a lot. However, um, during when the Israelites were brought back from e- Babylonian exile, Zerubbabel was their leader. He was the chief, um, and he helped to be the director, the architect of the rebuilding of the temple. Um, this was the reestablishment of God's presence in the midst of his people so that they could worship him. Um, and so Zerubbabel was was one of was the leader at that time, so he was a very significant figure. Um, and then we go down a few more verses to verse 31, um, and so it says the son of Nathan, the son of David. And this is particularly where there's a divergence between Matthew and Luke. Is Luke says. 
this, this side of Jesus' lineage, his earthly ancestry through Mary, who was his mother, um, came through Nathan. And Nathan was the third son born to David in Jerusalem, um, whose mother was Bathsheba. Um, but you'll, you'll notice, if you look at Matthew's gene- genealogy, that he's, Jesus' lineage is traced through Solomon. David's son, who who became a king, who was a very important king in Israel's history. Nathan did not serve as a king. Um, he did have a prophetic role. Um, but but that's, that's an interesting thing to note. Um, and then there's a lot of familiar characters going up to David. You know, we have Jesse was David's uh, father. And then Obed was his father. And Boaz. And Boaz was written about in the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth was primarily um, a way of describing how the Davidic kingship was God's appointed means of leading Israel. And so that story of Ruth was a Moabitess who was a foreigner, and she got engrafted, so to speak, and she's actually mentioned in Matthew's genealogy, which is very interesting. There's several women mentioned, in his, which makes that distinctive for an ancient Near Eastern um, Genealogy, yeah. Um, just looking ahead here a little bit, it says that genealogy refers to Adam as the son of God. Yes, we're going to get there in a minute. Yes, very. that is very astute. Yes. No, no, no. And, and so it does. It, let, let's look there. So, so he goes back in verse 34, you see Abraham. And so Father Abraham had many sons. We have that, you know, song from our childhoods. Um, and so that's obviously important. That's where Matthews would stop. Matthew, Matthew started at Abraham and went up. Luke is concerned at going past that, and he goes through, and you see verse 38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And this, is, uh, this really sets the tone and describes uh, Luke's perspective very well because he's showing that Jesus is indeed fully human. Um, he is connected to all the way back to Adam. Um, he's connected to all of humanity. And this list is written, the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of. And it goes back to Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. I mean, the original son of God. And uh, this stresses the universal significance of the incarnation, that Jesus, born of a virgin, he is going to be humanity's representative before God. He is he is there to redeem not only Israel. It's not just the promise given to Abraham. He's not just Abraham's seed. Um, no, he's stressing that he is the universal savior. Um, well, you know, I guess my question really yeah. is Correct. I've never heard that Adam was referred to anywhere as the son of God. It's no big deal. Mm. And so is this mm-hmm. the only place in the Bible that that would happen? Or is there other, are there other places that that... That's a great question. Is that title used of Adam elsewhere? Um, I will say that Adam is described in other places in the Bible as being the head of the human race. Uh, in other words, everybody falls under the umbrella of Adam. Um, and so... And why don't we look at, somebody has the passage Romans 
5, and there was a couple verses, I think verse 12 and maybe 18 and 19. Why don't you read yeah, that for okay. us? This might help us. Okay. All right. Romans 5:12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Yeah, and then was there verses 18 and 19? Yeah. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Yeah, Paul makes this parallelism in various places. He does it in 1 Corinthians as well, as Romans 5 here. Of there was there was a first Adam who was given promise of you know you multiply and, and exercise dominion over the earth and we all know Adam failed when he and Eve they ate of the forbidden fruit right and they were cast out of the garden um, that they were they had failed at their um, being God's children um, and so. Jesus then, Jesus then is called the second Adam. Um, just as the first Adam failed, it's stressed that the second Adam, the second, the second man with no earthly father. But did one of our creeds refer to Jesus as the only begotten Son of God? Yes, begotten. he's the only begotten Son of God. Yes, in this sense, it's 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 connecting the fact that you pointed out that Adam was created out of the earth by God. Uh, in that sense, he's the son, and he's the representative son of all of humanity. So everybody falls into the category of Adam. And you're either going to be in the first Adam or the second Adam. And the fir- everybody's in the first Adam camp, meaning we're all, um, we've all failed our duty as God's creatures, as being made in his image. We haven't, bear- we haven't um, in bearing his image out, we haven't done it well. Because we've done it with wayward hearts and disobedience. Uh, we've tried to hide from him. Uh, we've failed to uphold. It's, it's the thing we confess and worship. You know, Forgive us for the things we have done and for the things we've failed to do that we haven't done. Um, but Jesus does the inverse. He, he flips all that. Where Adam failed, Jesus is successful. So when we trust in Jesus, we're transferred from being under the first Adam into the second Adam. And that's part of what Luke's highlighting here. Is he saying Jesus is the full, complete, incarnate Son of God? And he's pointing to how Adam was made for this purpose, to honor God and everything, but he didn't do it. Jesus, how much more does he do? Somebody has the, there, there is a verse in 1 Corinthians 15. Who did I give that verse to? 1 Corinthians 15. Okay. 1 Corinthians. Chapter 15, verse 47. That's right. Can we read it? Uh-huh. Um, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Yeah, see? So, so I mean, that I hope that helps, too. That's where he's talking about the first man, the first Adam, and that's what Adam means. It means man. The first Adam was from the dust. He was created out of clay. But the second one is the only begotten Son of God. Um, 
before the world was made, by whom all things were made. <coughs> and so that's what Luke's highlighting in the virgin birth. Um, well, well, Adam, the first Adam, and I, I, I know very little about this, so it is, but my perception is that the first Adam is the one that com- committed the original sin, and therefore we're all sinners. Yes. Because that was the sin of mankind, so to speak. You got it. That's absolutely right. We're all implicated in that. Yeah, and, that, and that's because original sin stained us all, you know. So that's why David says in the Psalms, you know, I I I was um, born into iniquity. You know, I was even before I left my mother's womb. You know, I was I was in the category of Adam, first Adam, in need of redemption by why second Adam. Why do you suppose Adam. God doesn't claim the first Adam as his son, but he does the second? He does Jesus. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's an ontological kind of difference of. One's created, the other is begotten. Um, That's the key word. Here. Yeah, and so, so one is a member of the Trinity, you know, in the mystical union of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, um, the triune God, and one is not. One is ontologically a created being, um, made from, you know, as Stephen pointed out in his sermon, you know, God spoke and everything was created. I mean, he spoke and male and female were made in his image. And, and that came out of out of his created order. Jesus is breaking into the created order from outside. Another great mystery to me, which I hope you will address at some point in your series, yeah. is the Trinity. Oh my goodness! Yeah, that would be. That we could get into that after after Advent time, maybe. I'll talk to well, Stephen. I mean, that that's a great series. Or before you, you know, give it up or whatever. Absolutely. Thanks, John. Oh well. Um, great theologians don't understand that. So, but it would be good for us to wrestle with that teaching, for sure. Um, well, and, and what Advent is about is about Emmanuel, God with us, right? God coming and being, entering into his creation. And so Luke's talking about salvation is for all of mankind, it is universal. It stretches back for all those that are in Adam. And Jesus is connected in this way. And so Paul puts it a different way in Galatians 4.4. 4. Who has the Galatians passage? But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Very good. Thank you. That exactly. So he he sent his son to be born of a woman in order to redeem us, who all of us are, um, you know, separated from God. Um, and it, Jesus had to be fully man in order to do that. And we will talk about this in a couple of weeks when we talk about the virgin birth and the nece- necessity of that. But he had to also be fully man. We say he's fully man, 100% man, 100% God. It's not like half and half. He was really born of a woman, and that differentiates Christianity actually from almost any other religion in history, is that he, he spans this gap of spirituality from that which is mysterious and un, um, unapproachable. God lives in unapproachable light. But he breaks forth into our world, and he lived. It's a historical event in history. Our entire calendar is based around his entering in to our world. Um, 
and and so for Matthew, his lineage, he's Matthew's writing for Jews, and he's talking about how Jesus is born to be king. He is the true king of Israel, and that's it's a it's a way of evangelizing the Jews in the first century. Luke, he's writing this account about Jesus Christ, about Jesus the Messiah, primarily to Gentiles, both to those Jews who have converted to Christianity, but also to uh, a Gentile audience. He he stresses beyond being the son of David, which was very important to the Jews to understand. Okay, he is the rightful king, but he frequently calls Jesus in his gospel Lord, which distinct which is a distinctive notion in the gospels. You know, we have four gospels: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they're all written by different individuals with different personalities and different takes. You know, it's the same story, but you're getting different, different slices of it. And synoptic is yeah, that's that's the three gospels that are not John. So that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's because Matthew, Mark, and Luke share a lot of common stories and narratives about Jesus. A lot of common phrases are found in all three of them. And so there's a lot of uh, biblical scholarship that has gone into, especially in the 19th and 20th centuries, in that regard. But they're synoptic, meaning that they they very much overlap in what they talk about. John's very distinctive. John talks about things primarily in the last year of Jesus' ministry, um, leading up to the his, his um, Passover feast and death and crucifixion and it has a lot more um, spiritual emphasis of Jesus understanding of his ministry it's very it's much more descriptive of that whereas there's a lot of a lot more parable talk in the synoptic gospels um, which wasn't always understood by his followers great questions I appreciate those um, no, 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 no. Well, we're all wrestling with this. Yeah, we're all struggling with this. <coughs> um, oh, there was one other passage from Romans, Romans 8, 3, and 4, um, about this first Adam, second Adam business, which I think is really a helpful connection. Romans 8, 3, and 4. Who had that one? Did, okay. has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. That's it. Yeah, thank you. No, 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 I'm sorry. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be filled Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just another reference to what we were unable to do, God had to do himself. And Jesus came in the line of Adam. He came as a man. And um, that that's just a very important aspect. And that highlights a lot of what Luke emphasizes. Um, the, the role of women is really a um, revolutionary in his day, um, giving them status. In, in a world in which it was a very patriarchal world, very male-dominated world. Um, he, he talks a lot about the female counterparts to men in his gospel and also talks about women really ministering 
um, being a, a major part of Jesus' own ministry. They funded his ministry. They cared for him and the disciples as they were traveling around. Um, and Luke was also, he was concerned with outsiders of any kind, um, the Gentiles, uh, those that are considered unclean in that society. Um, you know, there's, a, there's a, one of C.S. Lewis's books, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and mm-hmm. in that, the first one, I think, Aslan, who is the Lion King, mm-hmm. refers to people as the son of Adam. He calls, ah. yes, that's a great son remembrance. You're exactly right. That's a great remembrance. That's really helpful. <laughs> I forgot the whole one. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's great. No, C.S. Lewis was uh, was brilliant, and but he used a lot of um, references from Scripture. And that's exactly one of them. Because we are all we're all sons and daughters of Adam. You know, we're all we're all in that line, which means we're all made in God's image. There's dignity. There's great dignity to that, right? Because we're unique in all of the animal kingdom. You know, we have we have rationale, we have intellect, um, we express through words and through emotions, and um, so we bear God's image. But yet we're fallen. We are we are not whole, and and we enter the world that way. You know, and, and we live that out. Then that's our fallen nature, our flesh, as Paul would call it in the in his New Testament letters. And that's why we need to be redeemed by one in the line of Adam. But we also know that he can't be stained by sin. Otherwise, his, his sacrifice on our behalf is not sufficient. Okay. And, so, and so that's why the incarnation is so important, that it's God breaking in. I have another question. It's not germane. I apologize if it's uh-huh. off track. No, that's okay. I think I, think I remember C.S. Lewis was referred to as a great um, Christian apologist. Mm-hmm. Yes, to be an apologist is to make a case for, yeah, to, to make an apology. It's not saying I'm sorry for Christianity, <laughs> like, oh, I'm so sorry about this. It's, it's building a, a rational and um, sturdy case for something. Yeah, you can make an apology for any number of things, but when it comes to Christianity, it's, it's defending the faith. It's saying this is actually a sound and logical and... Um, this will stand up against ideas against it, you know. Um, and so, and Christian apologetics is very important. It was important in C.S. Lewis's day, you know, 50, 80 years ago, and it's really important today. Um, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the foundation and even biblical literacy is not present in our culture that was at that time. Um, so, so even, even even references to things in Scripture like Son of Adam, a lot of people would today read C.S. Lewis and not necessarily make the connection you made there. Um, so, so yes, he was. I would I would commend C.S. Lewis to you, especially you know, things like Mere Christianity and Screw Tape Letters and uh, The Great Divorce. I mean, he he did a great job at creating pictures for us that helps c- communicate true things. Now, I, I don't. Think he got everything right theologically, um, but but I think he's very helpful, and and I I utilize C.S. Lewis a lot. That's right. Conversion. He did. Yes, you're exactly right about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. The, the, uh, what's the, there's a movie that they made about it called Shadowlands, mm-hmm. which Anthony Hopkins plays C.S. Lewis. Yeah, I mean, it's fantastic. The, the lady's name was Joy. Right? Joy, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, and he wrote about losing her in Grief Observed, yeah, yeah. Which, is, yeah. which has been a much-read book. Um, well, so, so, so Luke is really emphasizing the humanity of Jesus, and, and it's interesting that he waits until chapter 3 to put his in. Remember, Ma- Matthew starts right off. Here's where Jesus comes from. Boom, here's his lineage. And then he gets into Jesus' birth and the shepherds and the, the wise men coming and all those things. Luke kind of builds it up. Um, he starts off, um, he's, he's telling Theophilus, um, you know, um, I want you to have certainty concerning the things you've already heard about. So that's why he writes this account, this gospel account. He, As a historian, he basically, he was a companion to Paul. He wrote Acts as well, the Acts of the Apostles, or the Acts of the Holy Spirit, as you could actually think about it. And, and so Luke and Acts are kind of a companion. It's like two volumes. Um, and, and Luke's the, the author of those. And so he's writing these things, and he starts off, and he starts talking about John the Baptist's birth. It's foretold. He quotes from Isaiah, talks about um, even in the womb, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And then the birth of Jesus is foretold. Um, you know, the, Mary, uh, the angel Gabriel tells Mary. Then you have Mary's song of praise, the Magnificat, and then you have a the birth of John the Baptist and his importance, and then you have the birth of Jesus, and then you have the shepherds um, hearing the angels. It's and then you have the baptism of Jesus at the end of chapter um, two or at the beginning of chapter three rather. Um, just before this genealogy, Jesus is baptized, and you know, and the the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove, and says, "You are my beloved Son; with you I'm well pleased." And then we have the genealogy of Jesus. He's truly the son of Adam. Okay, so he's kind of been anointed in a sense in his baptism for ministry. Uh, he's set aside for a very special purpose, and it's almost like Luke is saying, hey, he is, um, he is fulfilling God's promises. He, all of God's promises are fulfilled and realized here in Jesus. And then right after his genealogy, chapter 4 begins with G- Jesus' temptation. So it's sandwiched between his baptism and his temptation is, who is Jesus and where did he come from? And it describes him as being the son of God. The real son of God, the one that Adam was supposed to be. Where Adam failed, Jesus does not because he leads right into the temptation. And you remember what happens in the temptation. You know, um, Satan is tempting him to turn the, bread, the, the, the stones into bread and tempting him to, hey, if you just bow down and worship me, I'll give you everything. And Jesus resists those things. He is the faithful, true son of God. He demonstrates his sonship in a way that Adam was not able to do. Adam fell in the garden. He couldn't obey God's one command. And here Jesus withstands temptation. You know, the serpent in the garden, and here it's Satan. And that's demonstrating his his sonship, um, that Christ really is... 
um, he did come to bring salvation. And so it expands in Luke's gospel. It's, it's helping to shed light on what the kingdom of God is, that the scope of salvation is for everyone. It is, it is not just for the Jew. It's also for the Gentile. Um, I give somebody Isaiah 49.6. Okay. Yeah. Listen to this prophecy from Isaiah about the Gentiles. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Yeah. That, you know, his son, the Savior, is going to be a light to the nations. It, his salvation is going to reach to the very ends of the earth. And it wasn't just for the small clan or family of Israel. Um, it, it was for everybody. It was meant for them, but it was for the world too. And Luke's emphasizing that by going all the way back to Adam in his... Um, would you read, did you have Bill Luke uh, 2, 29 through 32? This is uh, the Song of Simeon. And that he reflects this idea too. Um, Lord, um, Would you like me to help you, Billy? Yeah, you you want you want some help? Yeah. Okay. Here here I'll I'll read for you. It's Luke 2.29. Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Um, he's celebrating this. This is right here in Luke's gospel. Um, it's a reference to that Isaiah 49 passage you read um, that this is what Jesus came to do, to bring light. And that's part of what I like about Advent being, you know, as the days are short and there's, you know, when it gets dark early, thinking about the light of Jesus is still in the world. I mean, the Gospel of John starts that way, doesn't it? You know, um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the light shone in the darkness, but the darkness did not understand it. And that's even true today. You know, there's much darkness in the world. There's much darkness in our own lives. But the light, the flickering flame of God's faithfulness, of his peace and his joy and his salvation, it is still alive. We have the promise of God that's fulfilled in Jesus. And that's why it's so important that we understand his divinity, that he's the son of God, but also that he was the son of Adam, that he, he succeeded where we have failed, um, the author of Hebrews says he's been tempted in every way, just as we have, yet he did not sin. So even in the places that you and I are struggling, in the ways that we know we haven't been faithful, in the, the habits that we can't kick, in the anxiety that we can't seem to shake, Jesus has been tempted in the same things, but where we can't do it, he can. And that's the hope we have. That's, that's the gratitude that we can be filled with. You know, this season is not just about good sentimental feelings. Um, it's about God really rescued us. And he continues to do so. You know, Christ has died, but Christ is risen and he is coming again. And that is good news to us when we trust Jesus. It is good news because we now have all the fullness of God's promises. Um, 
We have many of them in shadow form now. We have them in part. Paul says we see through as through a glass darkly now. But one day we'll sh- we shall see him as he is. And he is, um, he is that good. So anyway, I just got off on a rant there, but... This is uh, that's that's from Luke's perspective. Like I said, Matthew will do uh, yeah, Matthew will do Matthew's uh, version next week, and, and there's some interesting names and thoughts in that. Um, so you're not. I'm not. Yeah, my wife and I we have our um, 13th anniversary, so we're gonna go away for a weekend. That's good. Let our let the grandparents have the kids and that, that works. yeah, rest. It does. <laughs> yes, but we hate missing during Advent. Any any closing thoughts or questions? There is a there is a one of the verses in Psalm one thirty nine that one of David's psalms mm-hmm. and verse sixteen or seventeen says, In your book were written all the days of my life before any of them as yet existed. Mm-hmm. You could interpret that as being, you know, um, uh, everything's preordained or whatever word the Presbyterians use. Um, yeah, predestined. Predestined. Uh-huh. Um, and I don't look at it that way, but I'm curious of what you think about it. Um, you know, my, my, the way I've rationalized that, that there's not, that predestination is not that you still have control over your daily, I mean, you know, you, free will. you still have free will. Yeah, that's right. So free will. Be either, mm-hmm. I'm either going to, I'm going to commit that sin or I'm not going Choices. To. I have a choice. And you mm-hmm. really do have the right choices and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you think, you know, the way I've rationalized it is that, <laughs> you do have the free will. And this is way off the subject. Actually. Yeah, no, that's you have okay. free will, but God knows in advance what our decision is going to be. I mean, you know, uh-huh. he, like a foreknowledge. Decision, what to run over that little old lady out there. Mm-hmm. He knows from age mm-hmm. to age that I would have that decision and how I would, how would, you know, what decision mm-hmm. I would make. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure, sure. The differentiation between foreknowledge and then like predestined fixed yeah, yeah. reality. Yeah. Sure. I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, you've, that's a whole can of worms you just opened. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Christians have been debating about this one forever, Yeah, <laughs> and will continue to. Um, that's the reality. It, yeah, yeah, but, but I, th- I think everybody can take what you're saying in that verse with <coughs> complete honesty going, yeah, God knows things we don't know, and sh- nothing surprises God, Right? Like he's he's not shocked by something. So if every one of my days is known to him, whether that's by, as you explained, foreknowledge, like he sees, he when he looks at me, he sees the scope and the span of my entire life, so he knows everything about it. Or if it's that I'm fixed into he's already laid out a will and it's being played out. Do you think he has a plan? Oh, most definitely. I do think he has a plan. Yes. So, whatever you mean. Yeah, there's two kinds of, you know, I I was trained at a Reformed seminary. So, I mean, I'm unapologetically Calvinist bent. um, But I think think there's two different kinds of will. There's God's intended will. And then there's just the way in which he, through... His own intervening grace and mercy, or by removing his hand, allows things to happen. They're still, they're not outside of his control. 
They're, you know, even bad things, horrible things. They're not, because he could have prevented the bad thing from happening, whatever, fill in the blank. But for some reason, he didn't. So, so, so that would be a Calvinist answer to that. Yeah. Um, but it's it's not usually very satisfying to people. <laughs> I mean, I, I think I think the the satisfying thing is knowing there is a God in heaven and He's on the throne, and nothing is um, is outside of His redeeming. There's something in, in the first first chapter of the book of First Samuel, I think. Mm-hmm. Where God says to Samuel, I knew you when you were in your mother's womb. Mm-hmm. Something like, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. Yeah. He, he, I mean, Ephesians 1 talks about before the foundation of the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so even before he created the world, he knew you. <laughs> That's, you know, and the, these are just concepts that <clears throat> blow our minds, right? No, no, no. I love, the, I love your curiosity. I have a quick question. Okay. 